It's good to be with you this morning, and I would ask if you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we'll begin uh, reading at verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, and the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the King of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Knowing the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we approach you in his name knowing that the veil has been torn in two, that the way has been opened, that by your Son's death on the cross and his glorious resurrection, the way has been made possible for us to approach you and call you Father. And that we might know forgiveness of sins and that we might know restoration and reconciliation and and all of the blessings that come with our salvation, that we might experience new life because of what Christ has done for us. We praise you this morning, God, and we thank you that you who did this for us did it by grace and grace alone that there was no merit or or any goodness in us that would warrant such sacrifice. And yet, Lord, you loved us unto death. We praise you for that great love that you showed us at the cross. And we pray this morning, God, as we meditate on the words of your Son, as he spoke those words from the cross, that we might put our trust in the God of the cross, the one who bears our sorrows and carries our griefs, and the one who takes away our iniquities, that we might see him lifted up, and that we might trust him. Trust him with our salvation, trust him with our lives. Lord, we pray this for your glory, that even as we go forth into this week, our minds might be renewed and our spirits transformed as we learn to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Out of the cross. The word excruciating literally means out of the cross. When you hear about something being excruciating, we often think of something that is a pain that's way above the pain levels that are associated with ordinary like bumps and bruises. You've probably been to the doctor before and they ask you how's the pain level and they give you those little range of smiley faces and you know, the one, it's the smiley face and then it kind of grows from being the smiley face to being the neutral face to being the one where it's like, ah! And the one that's the ah is the excruciating. 
But the word excruciating really means out of the cross. That's where it comes from, the Latin, to mean out of the cross. And so there's a, a kind of sense in which the word itself sees its origins in the kind of torture that Jesus experienced on the day of his crucifixion. But when you think about what is excruciating, what comes out from the cross? Well, clearly in the life of Jesus, what came out from the cross was pain, was suffering, was sorrow. But what also came out from the cross were these words, some of which we read this morning. We know from the Hebrew prophet Isaiah that Christ was characterized as a lamb who before his shears was silent. And that was pretty much the experience of Christ. He was silent before his accusers. His words, while he was teaching and preaching, had been a source of comfort, but they'd also been a source of controversy. Now, when he's accused of sin, he's silent. But when they said, Are you the Son of God? He responds, Yes, I am. And according to his own accusers, they condemn him by his words. But when he stands before Pilate, what do we see? Silence. When he stands before Herod, what do we see? Silence. When he stands before those who are accusing him before Pilate, what do we see? Silence. For most of the time, in fact, even while Jesus is on the cross, he is silent. But not entirely. For from out of the cross, he speaks seven times. From out from the cross, he speaks seven times. Were they listening then? Are we listening now? And if we are, what would his words say to us today? This week is Passion Week. It's the week where Christendom around the planet gathers in various traditions to bring our minds back to the events leading up to Good Friday, leading up to that event which is known in uh, the Christian calendar and on the calendars around the world as Good Friday. And Lord willing, my wife and I are planning to do a little evangelism this Good Friday, which has been our custom for many years. We like to go out on the street, and, and this year I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach. Rather than just start talking to people about the Lord, and I'm going to ask them some questions. I want to try to engage them in conversation. And so the first question I'm going to ask them is, are you working today? And some of them will be and some of them won't be. But, but then I'll say, well, do you know what today is? And most of them will probably know it's Good Friday. And I'll say, well, do you know what Good Friday commemorates? Some might know it, some might not. But for those who have some awareness culturally, I'm sure that they're going to say something like, well, it's the day Christians remember Jesus died. And I'll say, well, how did he die? Well, he was crucified. So let me ask you this question. If Good Friday commemorates a day a man is executed, why in the world would a holiday that commemorates the most torturous method of execution invented by man be called good? What is possibly good that comes out of the cross? And that's really what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at this as a time of reflection, a time of meditation. And I would challenge you this week, as you go through the week, to take these seven statements that Christ makes from the cross and use some of the things that we talk about today as a way to reflect on one per day leading up to Easter what exactly it is that we are thinking about when we think about Jesus on the cross. Jesus said, as we read this morning already, the first of these seven statements, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second statement is, today you will be with me in paradise. The third statement, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. 
The fourth statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth statement, I thirst. The sixth statement, it is finished. And the last, the seventh statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Didn't take long to read those words, did it? Less than a minute. And yet, Jesus hung on that cross for hours. And yet, in the midst of all of that time, he just utters these seven statements. But there was power in those words. There was power in those words because in the four gospel accounts, we find different angles as we're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. And each of them focuses on different aspects of that. And in one of the Gospels, we read that at the beginning, when they were first crucified, as the Romans and the priests and the mob are mocking Jesus, the thieves join in the game. They continue with the mob to hurl insults at Jesus. And as they do that, they join that crowd of unbelievers. But something happens. Something happens as one of them listens to Jesus praying for the very people that has just crucified him and he has a revelation about who Jesus is. And the words that Jesus says profoundly change that man's last few moments of life on earth. Those words that he spoke had a profound effect not only on that thief, but they also had a profound effect on the very man who was in charge of his execution. The very man who gave the orders, who was in charge of this process of torture and death, who started out like any other day putting to death ordinary criminals of a Jewish flavor, is standing there at the very end, and as he's witnessed this entire experience over the last six hours, he says, truly, this was a righteous man. And Mark's gospel, which is actually the earliest gospel written, goes on to tell us that it didn't stop there, that this man is so profoundly moved so profoundly affected that he goes on to say he was the son of God. Now what made him change? What gave him that impression? It wasn't that Jesus broke bread and multiplied it to feed 5,000. It wasn't that he turned water into wine. It wasn't that he healed the blind man or made a lame person walk. It wasn't that suddenly now blind people could see. It wasn't that he was walking on water. In fact, it was at the moment of his greatest humiliation, suffering the greatest indignity, where everything that would speak of power and glory had been stripped from him, including his clothes, and there hanging on a cross for all the world to see, in his nakedness and shame, lying, laying there, as it were, as on the altar, this man has a conversion. Let me tell you that the cross remains a stumbling block. But for this man, this centurion who lived by the sword, expected to die by the sword, and had watched multitudes die, whether in combat or in execution, had never seen someone pass away like Jesus. Seven statements. Seven simple statements. The first one, we find Jesus saying, after he's crucified, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Now, if we step back and reflect on Jesus' life, we will know that forgiveness is very important to Jesus. He believes in forgiveness. He preached forgiveness. 
He said, if you will forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He places such a high uh, importance on forgiveness that he links it to our walk and fellowship with God on a regular basis. Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I mean, Peter probably was thinking he was being pretty generous, right? This person comes up to me and sins against me seven times. It's like perfect sinning seven times. Shall I forgive him seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Jesus said, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. He went on to say, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. And so here, he's on the cross. Rubber meeting the road. Will he live what he preached? Will he do what he said? Now, you and me, we never do what we say consistently. We preach all kinds of things. We say all kinds of shoulds. You should do this. You should do that. You should not do this. You should not do that. And the words are no sooner out of our mouth than we're doing the exact same thing we said others should or should not do. There is such a disconnect in our lives between what we say and who we are. There is such a break in us between the persons we want to be, the persons we think we are, and the persons we really are. But not Jesus. So from my perspective, I'm standing there in the crowd and I look up at this man and I hear him utter these words, my mind is blown away. I'm like, oh my gosh. What did I just hear? Of all the things that he could have said, begging for mercy, crying out to God for deliverance, calling down vengeance from heaven, of all the things that I could have imagined someone say, these would be the last things that I would think he'd say. And yet, if I really knew him, these words would not surprise me at all. If I really knew what he was about, yep, this is Jesus being Jesus. Which points to who he is. Because who else but God in the flesh could be 100% consistent with everything he said, with everything he does. Because in one sense, that's the definition of integrity. It's also the definition of perfection. No break, no inconsistency, no deficiency, no weakness, no flaw. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And, and when we think about this, when we think about this, there's something else going on here that we want to wrap our brains around for a minute. That we think about the Son saying this and what it costs the Son to say this. And we think about Jesus' graciousness toward those cruel, you might say brutal, animalistic soldiers who just are taking pleasure in this. They're gambling for his clothes. They've just beaten him mercilessly. And they don't have any remorse or sensitivity to what's going on. They're just casually gambling on the ground beneath these dying, suffering men. And Jesus Jesus says these words and we think about Jesus' suffering in this moment and then he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now I want to let you in on a little secret. My daughter and her son-in-law are here. I'm going to embarrass them, it's okay. Say hi to Rachel and Mark. There they are. I want to let you in on a little secret and 
Parents, you'll start nodding my head as soon as I say it. You want to love me well? Love my kids. I don't care if you tell me how great the message is. That's great, that's nice, that's wonderful, but that doesn't do anything for me. I don't care if you, like, change my tire or fix my, you know, that's good, that's fine, whatever. But you really want to make me feel loved? Love my kids. You speak nice of my kids, you speak well of my children, that does something to me that just can't be. I can't even quantify that. That if my children are blessed by something you do, I am so blessed by that. When someone does something for my kids, I am like so happy for them. But like in the old Italian, you do something to my children, you're dead to me. (laughs) Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? We have to pray for real grace when someone hurts. I'll take the abuse. I'll be able to forgive it. Someone offends me. I can let it roll off my back. But you hurt my children? Boy, it is hard. It is hard. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Do you know the cultural event of 2019 is going to be the Infinity War Endgame? Some of you who are Marvel fans know exactly what I'm talking about. You probably bought your tickets. I know I have. Um, But the event is built upon what has become known as the snappening. Now, for those of you who are not Marvel connected, I'm sorry, I can't go into the 21 movies history of all of this, but let me just tell you this, that the big baddie is a guy named Thanos, which by the way is is the ancient god of death, No, no mistake there, and the idea is that in one snap of his finger, half the living beings in the universe cease to exist. I want to tell you something, the father wouldn't have needed to snap his fingers. The father would not have needed to raise his hand. But in that moment, after watching what they did to his son, his son needs to pray, Father, forgive them. We talk about the son's sacrifice, but we forget that the father, who is the the orchestrator behind all these things is witnessing the indignity the suffering and the shame being heaped upon his son and we are reminded what jesus said that god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son he gave his son knowing what it would cost knowing what he would endure knowing what he would see knowing that as a father all of the righteous wrath that he would have for the human race in that moment would have to be withheld for the process to continue. It reminds me this morning that there is a need for each one of us of this forgiveness that Christ prayed for. That there is a need for each of us to recognize our own participation in these events. To understand that it was my sin and your sin that put Him there and that we have a crying need for God's forgiveness that's afforded to us in the person of Jesus Christ, have you recognized your need of that forgiveness? Have you gone to Him in faith, believing that what Jesus did is sufficient for you? And we have a need, a need to forgive, that we are in the face of the greatest forgiveness ever offered the human race, that we are in the presence of such grace, then who are we to hold our petty offenses and grievances against one another when we ourselves, if we have trusted Christ as our Savior, have been given for, for forgiven the greatest possible debts? How dare we not forgive? And then we see here, The second word that was spoken as one of those criminals railed against him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him. Do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the second word that Jesus speaks from the cross, as he looks at this man hanging there, dying next to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
And you see what this, if the first word that Jesus spoke speaks of forgiveness, the second word speaks of salvation. Why? Because this man hears something that would bring a thrill and a chill to each one of our hearts if we heard it. I mean, some of us here, if we heard the voice of God say to us today, today, you will be with me. You will be with me. Some of us might get a little excited about that. Amen? Some of us might say, okay, Lord, how am I going to get there? Because <laughs> there's all kinds of ways rapture would be great. Car accident? Not so much. <laughs> but you see, this man heard these words. He already knew that he was dying. The only question was, where would he be spending eternity? And you see, what was the pivotal moment? Well, you see, he, he gets this, this, this word of assurance, this promise, not because he deserved it. I mean, he's a thief being executed he's a bad man he's a wicked sinner he doesn't deserve this he certainly doesn't merit it there's no promise he could make there's no commitment i'll be better i'll try harder i'll do my best tomorrow there's no tomorrow there's just today. And today he's pinned to a cross. And today he is dying. And there is no hope. There is no chance to make good on this promise. Except it's by grace. Except it's through faith. You see, what happened there was that he, suddenly he understood that the man dying next to him was not just a man. He didn't know what kind of kingdom Jesus was going to get. He just knew he was a king. He didn't know that, that uh, uh, where this kingdom was going to come or when it was going to come. He says, when you come into your kingdom, he doesn't know when it's going to come, but he knows that, that he's innocent. He knows he's righteous. He knows that he deserves to be on that cross, but Jesus doesn't. In other words, he knows more in the few moments that he's had with Christ on the cross than all the religious people around them have seen for the last three and a half years. And it's just enough that he says, I'm putting my trust in that man right there. Naked, bleeding, doesn't look like a king, but boy, does he talk like a king. And he hears Jesus say, today, you will be with me in paradise. So this morning, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Have you understood this transaction that God made on your behalf? That it's not based on your efforts or works or the struggles you think you might have or trying to be good or joining the church or belonging to a certain community or having a certain identity. That none of those things really make a difference when it comes to your standing with God and that the only thing that matters is Jesus and whether you trust him or not. That whether you're putting your faith in the God of the cross, the one who's hanging here right now dying as we're seeing it witnessed before us or whether you think there's some bargaining you can do with God or some transaction that you can make or there's some kind of promise you can keep that God would say okay that's good enough you can get into heaven now because if you think that way I have to tell you you're no different than the people who spat on Jesus because if you think there's a bargain that can be made if you think there's a promise that you can keep that would somehow basically say that God now owes me salvation you've just spat on the cross because what you're telling God is this was completely unnecessary. I can do this myself. Salvation is by grace through faith. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done. It is only Jesus. And of course as the story unfolds and we see Christ hanging there, suddenly there's a moment where we look into the crowd and we see suddenly that amidst the people standing there is his mother and his aunt 
And these other women, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus sees his mother and the disciple whom he loves standing nearby, he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Who should have been there? Who should have been there in this man's final moments when people are suffering, when they're going through this, this process that we call dying? Who do you want to be there when it's your turn? You want your family there. You want your friends there. You want your loved ones there. And what does Jesus look out and what does he see? He sees his mother. He sees three other women and one of the twelve. Who else should have been there? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So said the people of Nazareth. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Mary's there, but where's James? Where's Joseph? Where's Jude? Where's Simeon? Think about how more excruciating it is for Mary that not only has she watch her son die, she has to watch her son die knowing that her other children have abandoned him too. And in the process, abandon her. And you see, the, Jesus says, Father, Father, forgive them. And so the very first address reminds us that Christ is God in the flesh, the Son of God. And He cries out to His Father in heaven. And we're reminded of His deity. And then in the third statement, He sees His mother and He says, Woman, and I can't help but think how painful it was for her to hear those words because it's not a derogatory term it's not a disrespectful term it's the very same way he addressed her when she asked him to perform his first miracle woman what does this have to do with me and all of mary's life she has waited for this moment in dread knowing that simeon the old man's prophecy was going to come true where a sword would pierce your own soul and in life, she dreaded this moment. And as Jesus' popularity grew, she must have wondered, when will it come? When will it come? He's rising in popularity. They want to make him king. They're hailing him as the Messiah. On Palm Sunday, this day, she watches the crowd celebrate his identity as the chosen one of God, prophesied, sent from heaven. When will it come? Is he come? When will this terrible day come? Are we bypassing it? Was Simeon wrong? Why, he was just an old man. What did he really know anyway? And six days later, she's standing at the foot of the cross that her son is hanging on, naked, beaten, bloodied, and shamed. And now she knows this is the day. And we hear him say from this cross words of affection, words that are meant to comfort her. And we read the poem, Christ above in torment hangs, she beneath beholds the pangs of her dying glorious son. Mother, this, this too is your son. It isn't that her God is dying, it's her son and she can't help him. Mother, this is your son. And in pain beyond words, we see Jesus' unimaginable self-possession at the last moments, nails through his hands and feet, still expressing love for his mother and for his friend. It seems so impossible to imagine. He must have been God to have spoken that way. I couldn't have mustered it. And if I were his mother, I might have wailed, tearing the hair from my head. I don't want the beloved disciple. I'm not living with John. I want you. But Jesus is there, and Jesus is here, leading his mother and his friend to each other. 
and leading us to each other 2,000 years later. You see, because in that moment of affection, Jesus, affection, Jesus redefined family. He had been hinting at it all along in his ministry. He had been hinting at it all along. Who are my brothers and my sister and my mother? But those who do the will of my Father who sent me. And so what we are told here now is that he is concerned for us and he provides for us and he wants an affection for us to be experienced amongst us. That is why Paul would write, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as it, God in Christ has also forgiven you. Affection. The brotherly kiss. The tender listening. Jesus caring for his mother and showing us how to care. But now we come to the crux of the matter, pun intended. Like a hill whose summit we have now arrived at, we come to the darkest moment on Golgotha. As the number four is the center of the numerical sequence of seven, so is this fourth statement, the climax of the crucifixion of Christ. For what does Jesus say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in those hours of darkness, something terrible has happened. Notice that he no longer addresses his Father in heaven. He no longer cries out to his Father, but rather he cries out to his God. And now he stands as a condemned saint, an abandoned saint, crying out, why God, why? Of course, we know it's a rhetorical question that echoes the 22nd Psalm that the psalmist David wrote centuries earlier where in his great pain, he embodies in that moment the sentiment and emotion and becomes a prophetic word of Christ. A rhetorical question. Why? Because in that moment, he was being made sin for us. He was being consumed by the wrath of God. He was experiencing the burning anger of the holy God. He was suffering the righteous judgment of the sovereign of the universe. He stood condemned, the Son of God, in my place. Jesus, the Holy One who knew no sin, became sin for us. Johnny Erickson Tata wrote a book entitled When God Weeps and she imagined this moment in the life of Christ and she has the Father speaking to the Son but not as the Father to the Son but rather as the God of the universe, the judge of all, speaking to the accused. Son of man! Son of man! Why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques and mock your parents. Who gave you such boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, and relished each morsel and bragged about it all. I loathe these things. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Does the list ever end? Think of the sins of one day globally. Think of the sins of one lifetime and multiply them by seven billion. Think of the sins of history 
from Adam to now. No wonder the prophet would say he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Holy One who knew no sin became sin for us. You know, there are psalms that are identified as messianic psalms. It's very uncomfortable to read them. You know why? Because in those psalms, the psalmist, has, the, the psalmist is confessing sin. But clearly, they are linked to Jesus in the New Testament. And yet, some scholars really wrestle with this. They're like, how could the psalmist have Jesus be the Messiah? And these are clearly linked to Messiah, but he's also confessing his sins. Some say, well, it's just sort of like a break in the narrative. In other words, this part of the psalm is talking about Jesus, but this part's talking about the, the writer, and then it goes back to talking about Jesus. And I don't think so. I don't think so, because he identified with my sin. He became the guilty one so I could be let free. That means he has to own it. Like Daniel said in his prayers, we have sinned against the Most High. What did Daniel do? But he was a righteous man owning the sins of his people. Here is Jesus, the righteous one, owning the sins of the human race. And we know why. He was forsaken so that we would never be. How else could a holy God say to people like me, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. How could I say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You see, if he's not forsaken, there's no way, there's no possible universe I could live in where God could say to me, I will never leave you. Where sin separates us from him, it alienates us from him and from one another and from ourselves. How is it possible unless he bore all that abandonment? in that time. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling abandoned, I want you to know Jesus knows what you will never know if you are his. If you're feeling like you've been abandoned right now, I need you to understand that Jesus knows what you will never know if you're his. You do not know what it means to be abandoned by God. You might feel like you're abandoned by God. You might feel like you're alone in whatever crisis you're facing. But Jesus, no, you don't know what that is. You could not possibly know. And all we need to do is remember that he understands whatever feelings we have of abandonment, isolation, being forsaken by others, we need to understand he knows so much more. You will never be forsaken because he never fails. He never leaves. He never forsakes. He never abandons, which means you are never alone. You're never on your own. You're never by yourself. You will never be forsaken. Not ever. That is the anguish. And now we're reaching the end. The last three sentences come very quickly, one right after another. Jesus knowing that everything has now been finished so the scripture would be fulfilled says, I am thirsty. How much did he thirst? Someone said this, there was more spit on him than in him. Why was he thirsty? Think about the hot Mediterranean climate. Think about the loss of fluid from the bloody sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about the fact that he's now been up for more than 36 hours with no rest and no comfort. Think about the loss of blood from the flogging, the crown of thorns, and the crucifixion, and all this and more. You know what? It's not a marvel that he says, I thirst. It's a marvel that he waited so long to say, I thirst. 
But you see that even the timing of this is necessary because now he is reaching the end, knowing that everything is now at its completion. He can now give voice to that which he longs for most. It's not a drop of vinegar. It's not what we have to offer in sour wine. But he thirsts for that moment where he will be back in the presence of his Father. And he thirsts for that moment where he can keep the promise he made to the Samaritan woman. That he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who speaks to you now, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And this is the moment that he's been waiting for. Because Hebrews would say, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy that was waiting for him? The joy of finishing his father's work. The joy of seeing us brought in as his ransomed children. The joy of knowing that the satisfaction and the hunger and the thirst that you and I have on a daily basis will be satisfied because of what he did. And is now a river of living water waiting for us to quench the thirsts of our lives. We thirst. We thirst for meaning. We thirst for belonging. We thirst for immortality, for significance, for connection, for fellowship, for family, for love. We thirst for God. And He thirsted so that He could quench ours. And that final word that's coming, that final word is coming, is prefaced by a shout, a loud voice that Jesus cries out, Tetelestai! One word in English. It is finished. Arno C. Gabeline said it is finished. In the Greek, it is but one word, tetelestai. Never before and never after was ever spoken one word which contains and means so much. It is the shout of the mighty victor, the one on who can measure the depths of this one word. As the ancient Greeks like to say, to give a sea of matter in a drop of language. It is the word the artist used to complete the masterpiece and declares, done. It is the word the servant uses when he finishes the work that's been given to him. He says, finished. It's the word the merchant stamps upon the receipt, paid in full. It is the word the warrior cries, victory. J. Hudson Taylor was converted by this saying of Christ. J. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, was not a believer. His mother was praying for his salvation and and he came across this statement in the gospel, it is finished, and it bothered him. And he writes about how he spent a day in just thinking about this over and over again. What does this mean? What does it mean? And then he writes, there it dawned upon me the joyous conviction that since the whole work was finished and the whole debt was paid upon the cross, there was nothing for me to do but to fall upon my knees and accept the Savior and praise Him forever. That is what it is to be saved to realize that Christ has paid it all. And I love this quote by him. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Are you resting in the finished work of Christ today? Glory ever be to Jesus, God's own well-beloved Son. By His grace He hath redeemed us. It is finished. All is done. And now we come to the end. The suffering has reached its climax. He has paid the debt. There is only one thing left for Him to do. We have gone full circle. He started, Father, forgive them. And at the climax, he prayed, my God, my God. And now at the very end, we are back to where we started, where he cries out, Abba, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He, now, he now returns to his Father in complete fulfillment of his promise. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. You see, the cross didn't kill Jesus. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. The Jews did not kill Jesus. Jesus laid down his life willingly, and even at the end, dismissed his spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that was the end. But we know that was just the beginning. We do know that. Like the old southern preacher says, it's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing all together. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this time together this morning as we have been drawn to the cross and drawn to your Son. And we think of the things he said from that cross. And we are comforted, encouraged, and convicted. And we pray, God, that as we go forth into this week, that as our minds are drawn back to Calvary, that we would remember what was done there and worship and serve you better. For we would remember that we are bought with a price. We are not our own. So let us glorify you with our bodies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.